Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We got Jay's back in action for you. No game last night. So they didn't win. They didn't lose. It didn't even rain. They just didn't play. Even still, they gained half a game on the Yankees. Now six back once again in the American League East. Uh, still in the third wild card spot. Still half a game back of Seattle. Game and a half back of Tampa Bay. All three of those teams, eight and two in their last 10. And of course, coming out of that Baltimore series, the Jays with a four and a half game cushion on a playoff spot. The two AL Central or the three rather AL Central teams lurk behind Baltimore. And they're only separated by a game and a half, but they're five and a half to seven games back of the Jays and the other wildcard teams. So looking mostly like a three team shuffle for the final wildcard spots. Lots of time left. Lots can happen. Probabilities aren't at a hundred percent yet, but you did the work you needed to do in putting Baltimore back at arm's length, four and a half out. Jays are in Texas starting tonight, eight Oh five. For tonight's game, Ben Wagner will be on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. This is the last three games the Jays will play against a sub-500 team until the final week of the season. It's it's not literally all Rays and Orioles after that, but it feels that way. They'll, of course, play five against Tampa Bay starting Monday. You've got the Orioles for three, the Phillies for a pair, the Rays for four more, and then the Yankees for three. Then that final week is Red Sox and Baltimore. This is one of your last chances to pad a couple wins against a lesser opponent. Texas Rangers aren't that bad, though. They're 59 and 77, but their run differential is only minus 12. They have scored a lot of runs on the year. Fifth most in the American League. We know that run differential isn't everything. You can have a 28 to 5 game and that skews things. Uh, Texas isn't that bad, though. They've got some dangerous hitters. They've got a couple decent pitchers. And they're calling up Josh Young, the number two prospect in their system, one of the top 100 prospects in baseball. Going to come in and be their everyday third baseman. I also had a little news in the world of baseball today. The shift is banned starting in 2023. We're going to talk with about that throughout the show uh, and the impact that that might have on the Toronto Blue Jays and the league as a whole. The shift is done. You can, as of next year, you will have to have two infielders on each side of second base and they'll have to have feet on the dirt. You can still do outfield shifts and things like that, but the four-man outfield is done. The three guys on one side of second is done. We've also got a pitch clock coming. 15 seconds with nobody on base. 20 seconds with runners on. That one might have a more material impact than the third one, which is the bases are going to be a little bigger. That one's more about player safety, but technically it makes it six inches shorter to steal base. So we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Jays are in Texas. We've got Great show lined up. Uh, Ben Clemens will join us later from Fangraphs to talk about some of these rule changes and how we might expect that to change the offensive environment and the fielding environment for the Jays and other teams. Uh, We've got Levi Weaver coming on to talk about the Texas Rangers side of things. uh, Preview what a Josh Young call-up means for for Texas' side of things. And, of course, 
talk about John Gray, my my favorite guy, apparently. Um, but right now, we've got Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com. Keegan, how are you, man? I'm doing well, Blake. How are things? I'm still a little rattled by that tweet that we were sent. And for anyone who didn't see it, which is probably everyone, I tweeted out the lineup and someone replies asking if we could do a challenge and this was apparently an actual thing another radio show did. And the challenge was to eat an entire burger on the air. Keegan, we gotta, we gotta up the stakes here. We, this is a, that's like a warm up challenge that I sneak in during your answer to the question. What the bar can't be that low. This is upsetting. The words bag of thing from that title on that YouTube video, eating a single entire burger I had an issue with that. I'm a big believer in the side burger, the extra burger, the bag of burger. Um, yeah, that, that's a very low bar. Um, eating an entire burger on the air. How bold we have become. Yeah. Uh, by the way, speaking of the burger you're probably sneaking bites of right now, uh, Texas is a Whataburger state. Am I remembering that right? I think that's right. I, I remember vividly from this was one of the, I think, hard knocks years with the Dallas Cowboys. Jerry Jones having an employee whose entire purpose seemed to be just getting him Whataburger, which is, I, I think, what we should all aspire to. But it, it always looks so good, so I've got to hit it while I'm here. Yeah, or that or have John Gibbons take you on, like, a Texas barbecue tour or, or something like that. I think I might miss the game the next day if we did that. <laughs> yeah, you might. <laughs> By the way, do you expect to run into Gibby while you're down there? He's been tweeting so much about the Jays and the Rangers that I kind of just imagine he's going to roll up at some point. That's a good question. I was wondering that on the flight down. I, I mean, the John Gibbons media tour has been a, a surprising and beautiful thing this year. So we are in his backyard. You know, I, I, I'm hoping we see him uh, hanging over the railing. And if he's here, I'm going to rope Gibby in. We've got to get him a press pass. We've got to get him asking <laughs> some questions. I want him in there asking John Schneider for injury updates. Uh, it's, it's his turn. Yeah. Hey, John, who are you starting on Sunday? We, we still don't know. Maybe, maybe John to John, he'll give it. Um, so Keegan, the, the headline item today, and we'll talk some of the specifics of Jay's Rangers in a minute here, but the headline item around baseball is that um, the competition committee has voted to pass a couple of rule changes. We got a pitch clock. We got no more infield shifts. We have fewer pickoffs and larger bases. I have to imagine for you personally and for baseball writers in general, the pitch clock is the biggest win because we're going to see average game times drop from three hours and four minutes to something under three hours. I'm almost emotional hearing it, Blake. It, it's, I, I have romantic feelings towards the pitch clock. It's a beautiful thing. And for people who do not like it, I, I trust that you will soon. And I was on the fence about the pitch clock because like a lot of things, and I think you can include the robot strike zone in this, which is you know another conversation for years down the line. Some of these rule changes have more of a branding issue or a marketing issue than an actual application issue. And what I mean by that is that when I heard about pitch clocks, I was picturing an anxious, frantic, manic game of baseball <laughs> where everyone is dripping sweat and out of breath. It's not like that at all. Uh, seeing the pitch clock in use, this season for a couple of games down in Buffalo, AAA games, was incredible. It was not about moving quick or rushing. Nothing felt rushed, which I think is the most important part. It just felt like it had a heartbeat again. There was a rhythm of boom, 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 over and over through the game. 
And what you're eliminating really is those times where a pitcher comes off the mound, takes a big deep sigh and wanders around for a while. You don't notice it all that much during a game, but man, those add up. And this is a change that can take off 20, 30 minutes from a game. And I think it keeps you involved, so much more involved. I know there are other problems baseball's trying to address with more balls in play, more stolen bases, more action. But this makes it so much more watchable because you know this as well as anyone, Blake, when we talk to people about baseball, your friends who are not fans of baseball, the first thing people say is it's too long. And I say, yes, <laughs> you're correct. But that's the number one complaint or point you get from people who are not baseball fans. And I, I think that's a, a demographic of people we need to focus on. So if you shorten it, maybe you get a few more people who can sit through that game. And if they go to a game, aren't leaving in the sixth or seventh inning because it's already three hours in. Yeah. And I don't have, you know, I don't have a ton of issue in general with an average game being three hours and four minutes like that to me is like within the realm. I know it's a little shorter than NFL, even though it's a little longer than, than NBA and NHL, but you're right. It's, it's that wasted time. It's not that baseball itself isn't an exciting game and can't be a brisker game. It's that it's all those unnecessary things uh, that, that add up you know, 10, 15, 25 seconds at a time. Um, Keegan, you've been covering the Jays for a little while now. Can you think of anyone this would have been a disaster for more so than Rafael Dolis? Oh, it's all about Dolis. I still think of those days. My God, they were slow with Dolis on the mound. And on this current roster, I don't think anyone will be too, too affected. Uh, maybe you know, some of the starters, the, the relievers in the bullpen, they'll need to pick up a touch but I don't think we're looking at anyone who is going to have to shave 10 or 12 seconds off of their pitching with Dolis. It would put you to sleep. And if I am being put to sleep, someone who is being paid to be at the game, someone who has paid to be at the game, <laughs> it's definitely asleep. That's an equation I try to keep in my mind, but uh, you look back over the years, I, I wish everyone we covered was Mark Burley, but that is uh, not the reality. They, unfortunately yeah they can't be unfortunately um so i did i pulled some numbers on which jays this affects the most and you're right for the most part the jays staff and their their bullpen they aren't outlier like every single person in baseball for the most part is going to have to adjust to this and speed up just a tiny bit the one name that stands out on some of the leaderboards though is alec manoa alec manoa has by far the highest percentage of um pitches this is based on stack cast data that he would have had to sped up had to have sped up um this year i guess my only my only kind of like hey is there something that might happen here that we're not thinking of with this is could you see it fatiguing pitchers a tiny bit earlier when you are an intense guy like Manoa who puts a lot into each pitch and you know suddenly a 20 pitch inning is like kind of a, a pretty high-intensity workout. Yeah, us big fellas need a breather a little more often <laughs> than the uh, you know the, than the pitchers built like a uh, Kikuchi or Ross Stripling, for example. It's a, it's a different reality. And Manoa's an interesting one because I, I saw you tweet out his uh, slower pitch rate. It hasn't felt that way, I guess, just because he's good. So there aren't as many base yeah. runners in between these slower pitches. But that'll be a factor, number one, fatigue. And I'm interested to see if this, impact pitch mixes at all um you know when you don't have as much time to sit there and shake your head and think through pitches will people be more aggressive more direct with their pitching plans it'll change some things and for some pitchers i think manoa is a guy you can trust to handle it but 
some pitchers, especially veteran guys, I'm thinking around the league, if there's a 34-year-old guy in his 12th season who is slow on the mound, man, this is going to be awfully strange. This will be a, a real adjustment. And thankfully, the Blue Jays don't have any of those right now, but some guys are, are going to really struggle to adjust to this, I think, early on. It'll change as the year goes on, though. Yeah, and and a good example of a guy like that who kind of checks off a couple boxes you just mentioned. Bigger guy, been around a long time, works slowly. Like Kenley Jansen is a name that comes to mind. He's almost 35, so maybe it only affects him for a small window of time, but he's consistently one of the slowest workers in baseball, and he's worked this way for like 10, 12 years at this point. So um, those guys will be challenged a little bit. Something that has a more direct impact on the Blue Jays and it's visible and it's quantifiable. Um, the No more infield shifts. The Jays lead the league shifting on 54.5% of plays. That includes a 61.6% rate uh, with the infield shifted or strategically aligned. Um, they also have by far the largest number of four outfielder setups, which you'll no longer be able to do either um, based on a stat like defensive runs saved um, about 70% of the value that the Jays have produced above average this year is credited to their ability to shift and line up properly. Um, do you worry about the team having to ratchet that back so significantly for next year, Keegan? It's probably as big a factor for them as anybody, because I feel we talk about shifting a lot when it doesn't work. You know, yes. it's it's not exciting to say, man, oh, man, what a great shift. Who cares? But uh, take any Kevin Gossman start. For example, five balls slip through the other side. He has had the worst luck in the world this year. But the Blue Jays do this for a reason. If they are moving a guy to the other side of the diamond or to the outfield, I promise you somebody in that building has numbers to say it's a good idea. There's a reason behind all of this. The Blue Jays have been significantly more aggressive with this than almost any team in baseball. It's really part of their identity now. So it will require a big adjustment. You know, that's unlikely to be advantageous for the Blue Jays. But I think if you look offensively, there are some spots where it might help. them. If you're a guy who sprays the ball all over the field, eh, maybe today's not your favorite day. It doesn't matter much. If you are Kevin Biggio, today is the best day of your season. My goodness, you'll be able to pull a few more balls through the right side of that infield, you won't be shifted to death like he so often is. So it'll be on both sides, but uh, nothing I would try to paint as uh, you know good news for the Blue Jays. Might just be neutral, but I don't think it helps anything. Yeah, it's an interesting one where they shift more than any other team and they get shifted against less than any other team. So there's a huge disparity in that regard. But you're right, Biggio uh, gets shifted about 83% of the time, and he's got about a 25-point gap in production um, versus the shift versus non-shift. So he's the one guy you'd expect uh, to see a boost from. The Jays, of course, just not being very lefty heavy, neutralizes some of that. The one other player type I could see, and maybe teams still like weirdly shift outfield around this, but one of the most like, I don't really have much issue with shifts in general. And I think if you roll over a poor ground ball and there happens to be a fielder there, like you don't really deserve the the hit anyway. Um, but it's those like line drives that would go in kind of that like diamond behind second base where normally there's no one there, um, but shifts have placed someone behind the bag. Those are the ones that I think are the most frustrating because like 
you can't hit a ball in a better place really than like a hard line drive into center field. And Vlad and Bo actually lead the league. They're, they co-lead the league in that type of ball in play. So maybe a little benefit uh, for them there as well. The other two changes, Keegan, a little smaller in terms of what we can quantify and, um, you know, whether it's just for timing and player safety or if this could actually juice the running game. But um, pitchers are now limited with how often, how many times they can throw over. And the bases are a little larger, which makes stealing a tiny, tiny bit easier. Um, is this something you're watching with the Jays? They've been a little bit more aggressive on the base pass under John Schneider than they were under Charlie Montoyo, but still one of the more average to passive teams on the on the base pass in baseball. Yeah, I think this will matter a little bit. You know, you think back to how many close replay reviews we've seen at second base this year. That's enough to make a difference there. And hopefully, maybe it can lead to a few more instances, or a few, sorry, a few less instances of players popping off the bag and getting tagged because it's the rule. I think you have to call it as the rule, but it's annoying and nobody likes it. You can say both sides. But I think anything that encourages stealing is good for baseball, period. Because if you are talking about, and I think even hardcore committed fans love stolen bases, but there aren't many plays that happen on the field more exciting than an attempted steal for a casual fan watching a game. And on a sellout night at Rogers Center, that's still 35,000 of the people in the building. People love stolen bases. So if you're a guy like Whit Merrifield, you know, if you're Bo Bichette, you know, the Blue Jays have a lot of guys who are good base runners more than they are burners, even like a Kevin Biggio, for example. It's still good news, and I think it will lead to a little more action. I think that the limit on throwing over to first base will make a bit more of a difference in the game than people think. Uh, you'll get away from those four or five throws over, which is great. And there's a reason people boo those. It's because <laughs> they don't like it. So that's you know, anything, anytime you can remove a, a reason for people to boo and yell at a pitcher, probably good. So those will be minor, but if we see another stolen base attempt once a week, great. Yeah, I would love to see that. And I think that that's, uh, you know, like you said, it's one of the most exciting plays. And if you're the Jays, not only do you have some guys who could benefit offensively, Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk have both thrown out an above average percentage of would-be base stealers this year. And we obviously know with Gabriel Moreno, the the pop time and all that stuff. So uh, they might be well-suited to handle that. Uh, Keegan, let's let's look at the rest of this weekend instead of 2023 now. Uh, Jays have the Rangers Four three. We're getting Ross Stripling tonight. My bigger question, just because I just mentioned him, I think we're only expecting Gabriel Moreno to be with the team one more day before Teoscar Hernandez returns from the paternity list. You think we see him tonight? I think there's a good chance at some point you, know, you can see him. He's a really interesting option coming off the bench, if nothing else, uh, especially depending on how Gurriel is doing and whether he's in the lineup, whether he's available. But the Blue Jays, I think, really benefit from having that contact bat on the bench. A, a bench bat, when we think about it, and, and I've fallen into this over the years, you always think of the big power bat, the big six foot six slugger with platoon splits who comes out and tries to hit a home run. It's so valuable to have a contact bat, someone who you know can put a ball in play with a runner on third and one out in those really small situations. So he'll be there for that. Uh, you know, certainly an option to come in and, and catch late in the game as well. I think he makes sense down the stretch for the Blue Jays. If there's ways to keep him on this roster or bring him back onto the roster, but the the talent is there and, and that contact tool, just an ability to put a ball in play when you really need to, I think is valuable for this bench. 
so we'll see. I, and I agree with you on that one. It's just, you know, the question of, is he better served getting a couple more weeks at AAA or is everything so important at the major league level right now that you got to have the best guys on the roster? Um, speaking of best guys on the roster, Ross Stripling will take the hill tonight. Kevin Gosman will take the hill tomorrow. You're in a pretty good spot to start this series. And there's a big old TBD on Sunday in part so that you can get Barrios and Manoa in at the start of the Tampa Bay series, Stripling and Gosman in the back half, instead of having multiple question marks against the Rays. There was a question mark on Sunday, though. Mitch White was optioned down. Casey Lawrence has been optioned down and started in Buffalo yesterday. Um, neither of those guys can come back up until Tuesday's doubleheader, unless there's an IL stint. Does that make you think that we're headed for another kind of Richards opener Kikuchi bulk follow day on Sunday? Could be. It looked okay the first time, but it's, again, it's nothing you want to be doing in a postseason race. And what we're seeing here is the Blue Jays' lack of upper minors pitching depth mm -hmm. in the rotation. And that has been something that's been really worrying. I mean, really worrying all season long. But it hasn't come up much. They've been, A, very fortunate, and B, had players help them avoid that. Credit to Ross Stripling. That's why I think he is one of the most valuable people on this roster because if he had have stepped into the rotation and been just kind of average, you would have seen the Blue Jays churning through 10 different starters, DFAing, waiver claiming. His ability to shore up that final spot for most of the season incredibly valuable. But now you are seeing them reaching down and trying to find someone. Entering the year, you looked at a Thomas Hatch, a Bowden Francis, Max Castillo since been traded. There were options. But right now, there's really not that guy. There's not a number six or a number seven that you would really hope and love to have. That's not there right now. So going to a Richards and Kikuchi and a bullpen day, not ideal whatsoever, especially with that doubleheader coming up on Tuesday. But ideal is not uh, you know, really an option the Blue Jays have right now. So it's looking like one they're going to have to piece together. And I really liked how they did do it, I should say, in Pittsburgh bringing out Jimmy Garcia when they did middle of the game, targeting that real upside, that leverage, it worked well. And uh, I think that might be something you see again. Yeah. Especially against the top of the Texas order where it's, it's pretty deadly up top. And then there's a pretty noticeable drop off as you get further down. Uh, you maybe use a leverage guy through the, the first three, four in the order earlier than you would otherwise. Um, Thomas Hatch, by the way, uh, has been moved to the bullpen down in Buffalo. Um, maybe they're they're kicking the tires on what he'd look like as a long reliever, but he's almost 28. I don't know that he's on the 40-man <laughs> next year. Um, Keegan, before I let you go, in terms of that AAA starter depth, no team has terrific options if they're reaching to their seventh, eighth, ninth starter on the depth chart, but it does seem like the Jays have had especially few options down there. How do you address that organizationally next year? If you know, like the, the New Hampshire Fisher cats have been pretty good this year at double a, but a lot of the starting pitching that you have down there are guys who just got there and are probably going to need another half season there. Like Ricky Tiedemann and Sam Robertsa. You can't really expedite these guys just to have major league ready depth. How do you address it organizationally where next year, if you've got to reach down there, there are two or three Max Castillos instead of, uh, you know, the Thomas Hatch, Tyler Anderson's of the, or Sean Anderson's of the world. I think this needs to be maybe the top priority. When you look around this roster, there aren't a lot of holes, but think about the fact Ross Stripling will be a free agent. 
who is you say? I'd rather I'd rather not. I'd rather not think about Ross Stripling as a free agent. I, I like to bring the sunlight to the people of Toronto, and so you're looking at a rotation that has some question marks in a number four and a number five role to start with. Now, one way you can do that is veteran signings. Another way is via trade. You know, we've seen the Blue Jays do well in the past, targeting some fringe MLB guys, younger-ish guys. But you have to have a few of them, and they do not need to be superstars. It doesn't matter if they come up and can give you seven shutout innings. What you want is a reliable five innings. If they allow a couple of runs, two or three, fine, great. It's more about saving your rotation. If you need a guy to step in for 20 starts next year when somebody shakes an elbow in mid-May, that is when you maybe go to a Ricky Tiedemann or somebody who's part of your future. But it is such a luxury for teams to have a guy who can come up and do one or two and then jump right back down. The Blue Jays have had that in past years, but this year I think they were set up better for it, but it didn't work out. You look at guys like Francis and Hatch and Kay, a lot of these names just did not work out all at the same time this year. So it's been a weakness that hasn't been exposed too much yet. But, man, you had better hope that nothing else comes up down the stretch because there's not an obvious option there. No, and you are not. You don't have a spot locked up yet. Um, Keegan, last one for you just as a follow there. Um, I wasn't a, a big fan, and, and I didn't really understand the Whit Merrifield trade at the time. Um, seeing as Max Castillo, and again, Max Castillo doesn't have superstar upside, but he was a guy who was able to eat a couple innings for you and has continued to do that with Kansas City. Um, is that trade cast in an even worse light now that the Jays are scrambling for fifth and sixth starters a couple times in a row. And Whit Merrifield has, you know, just not really done anything for this team yet. Yeah, that has to be part of it. You know, uh, when you look at Max Castillo, was he a number one prospect? No, but he was not nothing. You know, that was a guy who not only could come up and give you innings, but could do that for the next six, seven years. And, you know, when you're looking about team control, and I know team control doesn't excite anybody. I, I regret even saying the words. But <laughs> when you look at a young guy who can come up and maybe be part of that solution, that's something the Blue Jays are lacking right now. That's also why the Royals wanted to target that. He fits with what they're doing. But I think this is uh, another reason this has got to be a big priority for the Blue Jays next year going in. A couple of young guys, but you would love to have just that 30, 32-year-old starter who's been around, who's done it before, but you're able to get in on a deal where he can bounce up and down. It's such a luxury to have. Yeah, it sure would be nice. And they'll they'll try to get through this 11-game and 10-day stretch here. Uh, Keegan, I hope you make it through this 11-game and 10-day stretch here too. <laughs> uh, with a travel day, no less. Uh, man, stay well. Enjoy Texas as much as you can. I appreciate it, brother. Take care. Keegan Matheson, MLB.com and BlueJays.com. That is the Toronto Blue Jays side of these rule changes and a quick look at this series ahead. We'll, we'll do more looking at this series ahead a little later in the show. Also want to hear your text five ninety five ninety. Um fireman about the weekend, about what, how you'd handle Sunday's start, um, what you think of the rule changes. We'll sprinkle those in throughout the show right now though. We're going to take a break. And on the other side, I talk to Levi Weaver, Rangers writer for the athletic. That's next on Jay's talk plus on sports at five ninety. the fan. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a little band called Pup. Don't do a 180 on the DVP this weekend. Hope you're having a good weekend ahead, though. One of our last summery weekends. I don't know. Or one of your first fall-ish weekends. It's all about perspective. My perspective on the Texas Rangers heading into this year was they'd spent an awful lot of money to still not be very good. And how dare you take John Gray, my number one Blue Jays pitching target. Uh, Let's go down to Texas. Let's talk to our pal Levi Weaver from The Athletic and see what's going on down there, why the whole front office and manager has been switched over and kicked out in the middle of what was supposed to be a multi-year plan, abandoned halfway through year one. Joined now by Levi Weaver, Rangers reporter at The Athletic, 3-2-EFIS on Twitter, great handle, uh, musician as well. My guy, Levi, how are you, man? I'm doing all right. How are you guys? I'm doing well. I was, I got to be honest. So, uh, of course, you know that the Jays and Rangers don't have the friendliest of histories, and it can be a little hard for Jays fans to accept, you know, begrudgingly enjoying the Rangers or even being happy for them. There were a couple things that got, a couple boxes the Rangers checked off checked off this past offseason that had me leaning like, okay, maybe I can forgive. Maybe I can forgive. Um, they hire Darren Willman of Baseball Savant. They hire a pitching biomechanics guy from my hometown here in Canada. They get Marcus Semien. Man, what went wrong? Why, why has this thing not <laughs> gone in the right direction that I, I think at least some of us outside of Texas were, were thinking the team was going to start moving this year? Yeah, I think there was maybe, uh, you know, John Daniels when he was around and Chris Young also, they they were pretty careful in the offseason to sort of hedge everyone's expectations. Like, listen, this is not going to be a one-year turnaround. This is this is step one, right? The rebuild is over. We're investing big in these free agents now because this is when they're available, but we've still got a lot of young guys that are in the minor leagues. It's going to be a while. Like, we are not expecting to be contenders this year. 2023 is when we expect to really first contend. And I feel like collectively the fan base went, gotcha. So World Series, <laughs> let's go. And uh, so there has been some disappointment, I think. Uh, I mean, they have taken a step forward since last year. They've, I think they are better than their record. They've had a lot of one-run losses, which is, when you're talking about Rangers teams that had beef with the, with the Blue Jays, that 2016 <laughs> Rangers team won so many one-run games, and then they got to the playoffs and got exposed. You know, they weren't as good as their record. This team's kind of the opposite of that one. Their, their record's not great. I think they're better than the record, but but they were never going to be contenders this year, and they're still not. They, they really have to address their pitching this offseason. Um, and then they've got a lot of young pitching in the, in the minor leagues that should arrive in the next year or two. I, I don't think they've ever had pitching depth like this in their minor league system. So it's on the way. Uh, it's just, it, it just, it wasn't ever going to be this year. And I think because of the inordinate number of one run losses, it has looked even worse than it is. That all makes sense to me. But the one thing that strikes me as, I guess, incongruent with that is that if this was a front office that laid out a multi-year plan that spent money, but it wasn't just about this year, what what in the plan changed or what in the plan failed to leave to, to lead to so much upheaval, both in the front office and the manager's chair? It's a good question. Um, I think anytime a team underperforms like this, the manager is the first one to take the fall. And I, I don't know 
if part of it was that Chris Woodward was around before Chris Young was hired and, you know, new GM at some point is going to want to hire his own guy to sort of implement his vision. The one that I was the most surprised by, though, was was John Daniels. Yeah, he's been with the team uh, in some form or another for 20 years. He's, he was at GM, you know, like from 17 years ago. I would have thought that they would have given him the rest of the year, at least, if they didn't want to renew his contract. I, I feel like he earned that. I, I kind of was was shocked by the what appeared to be a pretty callous firing. Um, and I, I, the reason we were given by Ray Davis, the owner, was that like he, because I'm I'm not a good loser. Uh, we've <laughs> lost too many games. We haven't been good in a long time. And we just go, yeah, but you know this this was the plan. This is, they're they're doing exactly what this plan that you signed off on is exactly what they're doing. So what changed? He just kind of didn't really give an answer. Just, you know, well, I did, we haven't been good in a long time. <laughs> there might've, there might've been baseball reasons to let Daniels go. I mean, like this rebuild, it's complicated because they were moving into a new stadium. There was pressure from ownership to sort of try to be competitive in 2020. They really probably should have started the rebuild in 2017. Um, but, you know, their drafting has, up until the last couple of years, there was a long stretch of bad drafting. They, they had a deload program that failed. They've had a lot of prospects that didn't really pan out. I mean, Nomar Mazzara, I think, is a prime example. Ronald Guzman, even Rugnet Odor, who I know you guys love up there. <laughs> uh, just, you know, guys, guys that did not uh, play up to the potential that I think everybody thought that they probably should have. Uh, but, yeah, the timing of it was uh Bizarre, I think, is the right word. Yeah, and just a couple months after he had signed all those checks for John Daniels mm-hmm. to make those moves. Um, not all bad, though. I want to ask you about a couple of the, the positives that come from that. One of the big spends the Rangers made was upsetting to me. It, it became like a running joke on the fan morning show here in Toronto that I wanted John Gray so badly and no one really understood why. And I, I just <laughs> I kept I kept kicking it and kicking it and kicking it. Obviously, he's been very, very good. I know he's on the IL right now. Um is, is that something, though, that, that Chris Young, as he moves forward, you say this team needs to find pitching? It, it, does John Gray look like a long-term fit there, at least? Yeah, when he's been in the, on the mound, he's looked really good. I think you, know, you always wonder when a pitcher leaves Coors Field, you know, you're, the, the easy thing is like, okay, he's going to be you know, X amount better. Some guys you know, pitch well in Coors Field, and that sort of suits their style. I, I think for him, his slider has been quite a bit better, and, and you do get more break on your pitches when you're not on the high altitude. So, uh, And he's actually throwing a new slider this year. It's more of the, um, I think what they call like the sweeper that goes more horizontally instead of vertically. But yeah, he's been very good when he's on the mound. I think he'd be a great fit. I would love to see him be like the number three starter next year. And if I were running things, I would figure out how many of these prospects it would take to nab like Sandy Alcantara from the Marlins. <laughs> that that would be the sort of move that would, at that point, the fan base could go, okay, great, time to go to the playoffs right now. Yes. Yeah, Sandy Alcantara would be a, a great one. Uh, another big splash that, again, Toronto roots in this one, Texas signs Marcus Semien. I know he had that dramatically cold start to the season, but what has the Semyon impact been like overall, not just on the field, but we heard for half a season here in Toronto that his leadership was really missed as the younger guys or the newer guys had to find their way into the proper leadership dynamic in that clubhouse. Um, how how well has Semyon fit, and are you starting to see some of those effects from him? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's quiet. He doesn't really uh, broadcast to us what he's telling the other players, but you can just tell by the way that he interacts with people. He's just kind of this sort of 
quiet, stoic guy who will, you know, we hear through the grapevine, like, he'll just pull a guy aside when there's no cameras around and have a little, just have a little chat. Hey, do you know what you did wrong there? Like, let's next time let's do it this way. And when uh, when Chris Woodward was fired, uh, we asked Tony Beasley about that. Like, hey, how, what's going on with the veteran leadership in this club? You know, Cole Calhoun's a bit more outspoken, kind of the rah-rah guy. Corey Seager kind of sticks to himself, but we he says that both Seager and Simeon are quiet leaders, but he specifically mentioned Simeon as a guy that, like, on day one came to him and said, hey, let me help you out. I can talk to these guys. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. So, yeah, absolutely has been a, a credit to the clubhouse. And one of the guys I would assume Marcus Simeon's going to keep an eye on the next little bit. This is kind of the headline item for this weekend. Uh, Josh Young, number two prospect in the Rangers system, uh, arguably number one prospect in the Rangers system, added to the team's taxi squad. And I, I believe it was you that first reported that he's going to play this weekend. Yes, he will be activated before today's game. Um, it's funny we we're talking to Beasley. We've been we've been just pestering Beasley with questions <laughs> about and and Chris Young too. Like, all right, Josh Young, he hit like seven home runs yesterday. When is he coming up? And uh, you know the the message has been patience. He'll get here when he gets here. So uh, day before yesterday, I said, look, I, I'm not going to ask you when he's coming up. I've, I've learned better. But when he does come up, what's the plan for him? And Beasley said he's going to be our everyday third baseman. I mean, he's going to play every day, but you know. We, we just don't know when that's going to be. And then, you know, a couple hours later, news broke that, that he was coming up. And I think the Rangers signaled exactly what Beasley said because they sent Ezekiel Duran to AAA to get every day at bats down there. And Duran had been the everyday third baseman here for the last couple of weeks. So uh, I believe that's the, that's the plan for him. He'll be in the lineup every day. And it's late enough in the season now. He's not going to exhaust his rookie eligibility for next year, which I think is important to them. And, with the new rules, you know, if he gets a huge bonus if he finishes in the top two of rookie of the year and the Rangers to get an extra draft pick. And so it's, uh, yeah, it all works out. That's great. Um, so excited to see him. I, I do want to ask, though, you know, he's 24 years old. He's repeating at AAA. I know he's had some big moments and some real hot streaks down there around an injury. Uh, the overall numbers, at least the surface numbers for this year, though, are a little underwhelming for a guy repeating AAA at that age. Um, is there a little bit of concern that within that or is that you know noise and partially like i saw you tweet that you had asked him a little bit about you know was it disappointment from not getting called up like what's going on there with you know there's a small disparity between how good we think this guy's going to be and how good he's actually been at triple a right so last year the numbers were absurd mm -hmm. uh if he had not been injured in, in a spring training he was going to be the the starting like opening day third baseman. Uh, I think that was the plan for him. And then, you know, the shoulder injury was his non-throwing shoulder, but uh, it was you know torn labrum. That's a big deal. And and uh, so when he when he first got to AAA this year, he went on an absolute tear. I mean, just like he, I, off the top of my head, I think he hit home runs in like three consecutive games, missed a game, and then hit, hit home runs in two more. Um, so when you look at his overall numbers, a lot of that really is from that September 1st onward. He went on a stretch of like one for 17 with 11 strikeouts. And, and that's what I was asking him about too. Like, Hey, were you expecting a September 1st call up? Were you bummed out? And, and he just said, well, I kind of thought maybe I was, but my, my mindset was not to pout. My mindset was like, all right, well, if that wasn't good enough, I'll do more. And just kind of started pressing at the plate and trying to do too much and went into a little bit of a slump. So I think, on my end, I don't think there's any concern that he's ready for the big leagues. I, I just think for him, the trick is going to be to maintain that mindset of don't try to do too much, just be myself, 
And, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. On the Hill this weekend for Texas, we're going to see uh, Dane Dunning, Martin Perez, uh, and Kohei Arihara. Um, Dane Dunning has kind of turned around a shaky start. Martin Perez obviously has this this kind of, hey, I'm back in Texas, and I'm really, really good now. And there was a thought that he could maybe be dealt at the trade deadline. Um, are either Dunning or Perez playing their way into kind of multi-year consideration there in Texas? And, you know, what's clicked for those guys that we should keep an eye on this weekend? Yeah, I think Perez is. Both he and the front office have said that there's an interest in keeping him around long-term. I, I'm not sure why they haven't begun those talks yet <laughs> because the price, as Martin himself said, like if I hit free agency, the price goes up. So um, I don't know. I think the Rangers would be wise to do that a month ago. Uh, Dunning, I think they're probably still in a wait and see. He's had flashes where he he's looked like a really solid number four starter, which I think is probably his ceiling. And and that's fine. The teams need a number four starter. Uh, his floor has looked like a really good number four starter on a triple A team. So <laughs> it just depends. Uh, I think they want to get another year out of him. I think he's got some arbitration years coming up. So there's no there's no rush on that. They can wait. And he's not going to hit free agency for a little while yet. Uh, one other note just for teeing up this weekend series, and something that stood out to me as like a little bizarre statistically. I look at this Rangers team and the gap in the how well they hit left-handed pitching versus how poorly they hit right-handed pitching is enormous. It's I think other than the Cardinals, it's the biggest one in the league, and the Cardinals, it's only because they mash lefties to such an extreme degree. The Rangers go from being one of the best offenses in baseball against lefties to well below average against righties. This, despite having five left-handed hitters and two of their best hitters being lefties, do you have any explanation for why there's such an extreme split for a team that is actually pretty lefty heavy? Here is an explanation that makes as much sense to me as any other I've heard is that there was an ancient curse put on them by a druid witch from the nether uh, forests of Toronto. I have no idea. I don't know why. It I would believe that. Lowe is, yeah, I mean, Nathaniel Lowe is, uh, like you said, one of their best hitters. He hits lefties better than righties with his reverse splits, and it's just kind of up and down the lineup. Like, I don't know if it has to do with the, you know, the batter's eye at the ballpark. I, yeah, I couldn't give you even a single explanation that makes any more sense than the uh, nonsense I just made up. Well, the Rangers might not see a lefty all weekend because the Jays only have two and they're Yusei Kikuchi and Tim Mesa. So I uh, don't know that you'd see a ton of those guys uh, this week, although we don't know who's starting on Sunday for the Jays still. And it's a possibility it's Kikuchi. So uh, maybe you do, but it could be a tough offensive environment. Uh, Levi, before we let you go, any quick thoughts on the the rule changes getting approved today? Anything stand out to you from that? Uh, other than, you know, man, Joey Gallo back to MVP level if he was still in yeah, Texas, right? right? Yeah, I'll be interested to see how Corey Seager is affected, both on offense and defense. Uh, offensively, he's a guy that's near the top of the league and hits taken away by the shift, so that should benefit him pretty greatly. On the flip side of it, he's not a super rangy shortstop, and when you can't put guys in a shift to sort of make up for that, I don't know if that's going to expose his lack of range even more than it has been this year. I kind of wonder if maybe you look next year at Josh Young moving to second, Marcus Simeon to shortstop, and Corey Seager to third is what I would do if I were in charge. But also, you know, I'm not the one having to have a conversation with the guy who has <laughs> you know, nine, nine years left on a $325 million contract. But, but he so. got the shortstop money is, is how I would try to explain that to him. It's like, yes, we want you to move off shortstop, but we paid you like a premium shortstop. So what's it, what's it matter? I think for, 
for Seeger, he is like a baseball robot. I think for him, the money matters less than the pride of being like, no, I'm a shortstop. Like, I worked hard at this. I can do this. Uh, Yeah, his ego, I think, would take a little bit of a hit. But he also might look at it as, hey, we can win more games this way. So, sure, it'll be more fun to be in the playoffs than not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want to be a baseball robot? Do it in uh, October or November. It's more fun. Uh, Levi, I know you're a big music guy. Any favorite albums from 2022 so far as we enter the kind of final quarter here? Oh, from this year. Um, I'm trying to remember when the last Idols record came out. I think that was at the end of last year, though. Uh, I've, I've been I've been on my Spotify Discover playlist, so I've got a lot of songs, but I, I have not been in like my normal album mode this year. Just sort of put it on shuffle and let it go. Um, we'll go with that one. It's it's not a new record. Actually, no. Pup has a new band. Oh. There we go. There's a there's a Canada connection. Pup's oh. new record is really good. Yes. Uh, also, enormous baseball fans. I actually went to a Jays game with two of them uh, the other week. So. Oh, nice. There you go. Well, uh, next time you see them, let them know they got a fan. I, I will absolutely do that. And I think, actually, Idols were here this week. So you're doing all kinds of Toronto connections here. I think they were here on Wednesday, so. I saw them last week here in Dallas, and uh, they're just always such a phenomenal live show. Yeah, uh, you all have to keep an eye out if uh, if Pup's going to be down in Dallas because they just had it. They just went out on a on a U.S. tour too, so maybe you okay. guys can uh, can connect. Uh, Levi Weaver, thanks That's so great. much. Thanks for so much for taking the time out, man. Of course, thanks for having me. That was Levi Weaver of the Athletic. Uh, while we were talking to him. Some very interesting baseball news. In addition to the pitch timer and bigger bases and no more shifts and fewer pickoff moves, Rob Manfred said that Major League Baseball has notified MLBPA that they're prepared to voluntarily recognize the minor league players union. Now, this is something that the people who write about these things, um, labor activists, things like that, had laid out for us that it was the right move because the union, the, the numbers we were hearing in terms of minor league baseball union support were strong enough that it was going to happen eventually, but it makes sense to happen. And MLB actually did it are two pretty different things. Um, so this is a great step as, as they continue to try to unionize minor league baseball Um MLBPA joining AFL-CIO earlier this week is another big step uh, in the on the labor side of baseball. So big day all around. Obviously a lot to come with respect to the minor league baseball players union. Um, exactly, you know, where the lines are between them and MLBPA or, or um, how things like Dominican and Venezuelan players are, are handled as they enter the minor league system because they do still operate outside of the current amateur draft system. Um, how do you do that? How do you handle that ethically? How do you make changes to the to the draft and signing system? We obviously saw um, earlier this week some just downright awful stuff about um, teams going back on verbal agreements uh, with players internationally. Um, so a lot a lot of steps still to go. But this is a pretty good week. Um, last week we saw MLBPA say, yep, we're going to send out the cards and we're going to try to union represent minor league baseball players. And then we saw them join AFL-CIO. And then we heard that the numbers being returned on those cards blew away even MLBPA's expectations. And now baseball voluntarily or preparing to voluntarily recognize the minor league players union. This is great. It's uh, they're good steps forward, not at the finish line, but 
unquestionably positive. The Jays are back in action tonight, which is an awkward pivot out of the minor league baseball talk, uh, but what can you do? You can send some questions into us for the back half of the show to 590-590. We'll, we'll tee up some of those in the final block as we also set up uh, this series and we set up the pitching matchup tonight, which is Ross Stripling against Dane Dunning. Dane Dunning, a guy who on the fan morning show, we were uh, picking on a little bit, not like teasing him, but in that gambling segment once a day, you know, Dane Dunning was good eaten early in the year. And then he's improved enough that he's like a fringe fantasy starter. If your league's deep enough. And I know that that's not a perfect comparison to, are you actually good at baseball? There are lots of guys who are good at fantasy and not good at baseball or vice versa. Um, but Dane Dunning's become a perfectly cromulent back end starter. And the type of guy who has tended to give the Toronto Blue Jays a little bit of trouble. As Fangraphs called him, he's the kitchen sink type. Speaking of Fangraphs, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to our pal Ben Clemens from Fangraphs, who has written of late about pitchers who have changed the pitch mix a little bit in the second half of the season. And I want to hear his thoughts on the recent changes Jose Brios has made in de-emphasizing his fastball and more pressing for tonight. Could Ross Stripling throw that elite changeup even more? Ben Clemens of Fangrass next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jay show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Pal from Fangraphs, David Lorla, not happy about the shift rule changes and putting up a poll that is uh, about 60-40 right now in favor of the the banning of the shift. Let's talk to David's coworker and another one of our Fangraphs pals, Ben Clemens. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I don't know that you if you caught the news before we hopped on, but did you see that Manfred has said that Major League Baseball is going to is preparing to voluntarily recognize the minor league players union. I just saw that. Yeah, I haven't had a lot of time to think about it yet, but <laughs> I am pretty excited by the general minor league unionization. So, yeah, yeah, it seems like we're moving in the right direction. Um, something you have surely had time to process and think about before they became official are all these rule changes. Um, I want to get into some of the specifics with you, but I guess first, do you like them at a like high level here? Because as I said, when I was bringing in uh, our pal, David Lorela, I, I not in favor and his poll is shows that at least on nerdier baseball Twitter, it's a, a pretty divisive topic. Yeah, I think, I think it is kind of divisive without being, particularly high interest level to me. I understand that some people want the shift, and I understand that some people really don't want it. 
but I don't think it's going to change my experience of watching baseball very much at all. Yeah, I, I don't. And, yeah. I, I don't think so either. I, I get why they're doing it. Um, I kind of thought that you know it would eventually find its own equilibrium uh, anyway. I, I guess the one area that I'm I'm happy about is you know line drives up the middle that the odd second baseman or shortstop would get to that they won't be able to as much anymore. Like th- that was the only spot where I was really like, you know what? You hit that ball pretty well and got a poor outcome. I, I don't care nearly as much about, you know, Adam Dunn rolling over a ground ball to a shifted second baseman. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way of putting it. Like the, the plays that it's going to change, maybe it'll save some of those up the middle ones. And maybe some of the dinky ones that go to the opposite field will now be fielded. I don't think that's going to affect my baseball watching very much at all. No, uh, certainly not. A team that might affect, though, is the Toronto Blue Jays, who shift more than any other team in the league. Overall, they shift more than any other team in the league in the infield, and they use a four-man outfield more than any other team in the league. The four-man outfield is out. You can shift, obviously. You can position your your infielders where you'd like on, on the dirt and on each side of second base, respectively. Um, but when you see a team at that extreme level of shifting, do you have some concern about how this affects their defense heading into next year? Uh, No, because A, you can do a lot of what the Blue Jays are doing in shifts in the new rules. It's not completely punitive. You need two fielders on each side of second base, but you can still move around within that. And if you're putting your shortstop kind of close to up the middle, that's pretty different from a normal uh, normal, whatever you call it, formation, defensive alignment. And additionally, it's just hard for me to believe that their defense efficiency is affected that much by the shift. They've gotten better, and it's been, despite Matt Chapman's numbers not being really good, but it's just hard for me to say this is because of the shift. If you look at the numbers, it's not clear that it's because of the shift instead of just them being better at defense. Yeah, that has to be the hope, and you'd hope, you know, with good individual defenders around the diamond, um, that, yeah, no matter how you line up, you'll be pretty good relative to uh, league average. On the other side of things, the the only hitter who seems like they'll be dramatically affected on the Jays is Kevin Biggio, who gets shifted against 83% of the time and and has by far the most um, extra outs from the shift over the last couple years as a Blue Jay. Um, Is there a certain type of hitter that you're most curious about how this affects, like, like Biggio to me is an interesting, hey, this guy's really affected by this because he's not the typical like heavy slugger left-handed type. Is there a type of guy like that or a class of players that you're most curious about now? Yeah, I'd say it's generally lefties with a with an approach. Actually, the best way I can describe this is with a righty, but with a Marcus Simeon kind of approach. And that's trying to pull the ball in the air not necessarily being a huge power guy, but getting to your power by pulling the ball in the air. So, I mean, Semyon isn't quite the poster boy for this because he's a righty, but Bijou gets a lot gets to a lot of his power by pulling the ball. He's a lefty. Shifts are just much more effective against lefties. That that's the biggest thing. Every lefty is going to see a Babbitt increase and a, just a results increase of a little bit by not being able to be shifted against. But getting the ball in the air to the pull side generally means that if you put the ball on the ground, you're definitely pulling it because you're already trying to pull the ball. If you top it, that means you're probably out in front. And those kinds of guys, it's not like they can't produce on 
like with a shift against them because the ground balls are already the worst part of their outcomes anyway. But it's just going to be a, a nice little tailwind. You'll get a few extra hits on the harder hit ground balls. The the soft ones, those are probably still going to be outs because of the way that uh, the way that infields will still be able to permute themselves. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm not. If we're talking, you know, justice with batted balls, a soft ground ball probably doesn't deserve to uh, find a hole all that often. Um, some of the other things that are changing here, Ben, I'm curious about your take on how this will change, you know, not Jay specifically, but the, the macro in the league. And one of them is it looks like the league would like stolen base attempts to go up. They're consistently down. Some of that had to do with the explosion of power and, you know, it, it's the break even point for stolen bases is higher. If it's a higher home run environment, um, so yeah. the league is now limiting how often a pitcher can throw over, speeding up the pitch clock and making the bases a little bit bigger. What do you think, like there are a number of reasons to make those changes, but how much of it do you think is about juicing stolen base attempts and how effective do you think it might be? I don't think the bases matter at all. Uh, I think that the bases are a good move from a safety perspective, just because fewer kind of legs crossed both at first base and at tag play to other bases is just good for me as a, as a consumer of baseball entertainment. I want the best players to be on the field more often. And if you make them a little bit less likely to glide, great. I know that they say baseball is a game of inches, but it's not, it's usually not. <laughs> it's just impressive because sometimes it is. And moving a base by two inches isn't going to tell your guy at first base. Well, now you can just take off every time. <laughs> I don't think the larger bases matter that much. The pickoff attempts do matter, and the minor leagues have seen increased stolen bases when they've done that. Well, they've been making so many different changes, and the players are so unused to them because they keep moving levels and having different changes that it's hard to directly uh, port that to how many stolen bases the majors will have. I think it's just a good change, though. No one says what baseball doesn't have enough of is repeated pickoff throws to first. (laughs) like, why not limit them? If, if it results in a bad stolen base for your team, yeah, you're going to feel bad. But for the most part, I just I find it pretty hard to be that upset about this. It's a part of the game that no one likes. And if your argument against it is, well, they just shouldn't restrict anything, uh, yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah. I get when they restrict things that aren't fun. I, yeah. I'm totally in that. And I've never met someone who just thinks baseball doesn't have enough pickups for us. Yeah. So, pitch, pitch from wherever great. you want then hit on top of the plate, do whatever. Like the, the logical extreme of this is uh, is a bit much. Um, okay, so in, in terms of the stolen base stuff, when we're looking at, say, catching prospects or evaluating catchers, um, you know, how well you control the running game has been minimized pretty significantly in that, like, not only is it, it doesn't feel like it's talked about a ton, but there just aren't a lot of stolen base attempts. Um, are we going to have to look for that in a catcher a little more closely Moving forward? So Kyle Body, the founder of Driveline Baseball, had a pretty good thread about this today, actually. And he was, for either a year or two, the minor league pitching coordinator for the Reds. Mm -hmm. And the Reds did a really good job limiting stolen base attempts. And he said that it doesn't come down to pickoff throws. He'd prefer his right-handed pitchers to not make a pickoff throw all year because you're never going to get anyone. And you might make an error. What he said instead is they just drilled time to the plate, time to the plate, time to the plate. And if you can have it around 1.4 seconds, which is fast, but not obscenely fast, it doesn't really matter if you're making pickoff throws or not. 
the the adage that you steal a base on the pitcher is just true. If you look at the the relative co- composition of who gets stolen on, it's much more the pitcher. And you know you can have the same catcher behind the plate, fast pitcher, slow pitcher. That matters way more than whose arm it is behind the plate. Of course, it will still come up. If you have just a complete noodle arm there, <laughs> that just puts more pressure on the pitchers to be quick. But uh, to me, it's much more about pitchers than it is about catchers. If it gets to the point where you have to make a strong throw to get the guy out, something's already gone wrong. And I think that's actually good. It's going to put the emphasis where it should be on pitchers just getting the ball to the plate and being quick about it. Yeah, I like that. And, and you know, the, there's a good example of it in Toronto here where Alec Manoa works slowly and is the team has the most pickoff attempts by far on the team. And like that does do an okay job of controlling things. But if you were Kevin Gosman and you were just a little quicker to the plate, like there's a reason Kevin Gosman is the easiest Jays starter to steal on. So um, some interesting takeaways there. Um, ben, last one on the rule change side. So speeding pitchers up, setting a, a clock, obviously it's good for pace of play. Do any Does anything stand out to you as a possible externality? And you mentioned player health when it comes to the larger bases. Do we worry a little bit about fatigue coming on quicker for pitchers if they don't have as much time to kind of reset and refuel between pitches? Yes. Uh, I think that what's going to happen first is that pitchers are just going to throw a little bit less hard. And there's pretty good evidence of that, that when pitchers take relatively less time between pitches, their velocity is not as high as when they take relatively longer between pitches. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I've, I've gone to the gym. You've gone to the gym. It, it's a lot easier to go max effort and then rest for 30 seconds and go max, <laughs> max effort and do it every 15 seconds. And that's, that's definitely going to be an adjustment for pitchers because – if you watch guys, when they get into high leverage situations or when they feel stressed, they just slow it down and charge all the way up and then exert every last drop of energy on each pitch and then let it, like, you know, let all their energy come back again. I think that is going to take some adjusting to, and that's definitely an injury concern, right? If, if you're trying to go max effort and you're saying, oh, I actually haven't, like, I haven't fully rested, and so I feel a little bit unsettled, yeah, that, that's an injury risk. I I find it hard to feel too bad for pitchers because what they're <laughs> doing is trying to throw like incredibly hard when their body is like not going to allow them to because they're like going faster. One of the big like trends in baseball over the last I don't know like ever basically is pitchers just throwing fewer pitches harder and going higher and higher effort on every pitch. Starters, relievers, everybody. If this kind of moves that back a little bit, I'm I'm happy with it. I I don't think that the the logical end of baseball of just a few guys taking a long time between pitches and throwing 100 is great. I I don't think that's what I really want as a spectator, and I don't think it's what most fans want. So I think it's actually an ancillary benefit that it's going to force pitchers to not go max effort on every pitch. But yeah, I do see why the players' union objected to this specifically. It's going to take some time to get used to, and I kind of wonder if they could have done it over you know, two or three years of phase-in instead of just having it come in next year. Yeah, that, it's a big adjustment. I, I looked at the Jays' pitch times, and like every single Blue Jays pitcher is going to have to pitch quicker, most of them to the extent of like four or five seconds a, a pitch, which, you know, that tells you just how much room there is to tighten things up and speed things up, but that's a big change. Um, 
One other pace of play thing that they didn't address, and I don't even know how you address it, but um, my pal Drew Fairservice of the Spin Rate podcast at The Athletic tweeted out earlier that there are significantly more on a percentage basis and a volume basis, obviously, um, foul balls in baseball now than there were in even not all that long ago. And some of that probably has to do with just how good the stuff is, just how good the velocity is. But foul balls obviously add up to longer games, especially when they happen with two strikes. Can you think of anything that that would potentially resolve that? Or, or is that maybe something that resolves a little bit from what you just said, that pitchers might have to throw a little less hard because of the uh, quicker time? Well, I'll first say I hope that the quicker time will help a little bit, but I've only seen one plan that can really address this, and it's pretty out there. So strap in for this one. <laughs> Andrew Perpetua, who is a – he's worked for the Mets. He's a really good baseball analyst. He has an idea to fix offense. And essentially, he just wants the foul lines to be about three feet into foul territory. So not starting from home plate, but like starting from a point behind home plate – and so there will be a little bit of territory past first base towards the first base dugout that's in fair territory, like all the way down the line. So it's not a ton more fair territory, but opening up both sides uh, to where there's just more fair territory near foul balls. That would obviously reduce the number of foul balls mechanically, like <laughs> some of them would just land uh, fair when what would have been foul before. But And it would also obviously make defending things much harder because you just have more territory to cover. I have not looked into whether this is worth it or whether baseball looking that weird would be worth it. But other than that, I don't know what you do about foul balls. So if, if this is a thing that you've decided to address, you need to take drastic measures. Yeah. The other thing I guess would be move the mound a, a little bit back. Um, and that's obviously going to have a lot of different offensive impacts. The tough thing about evaluating the foul ball thing is that we don't get like the tracking and batted ball data on foul balls. They all just get, you know, it's just a foul ball. So without knowing specifically where they land in and all that stuff, it's a, you know, it's a limitation, yeah. I guess, uh, of the data we have. Um, okay, Ben, I want, I want to change gears here and talk about pitching. Um, you had two very interesting pieces up at Fangraphs this week about the pitchers who have changed their pitch mix the most since the trade deadline, uh, one group of relievers, one group of starters, no blue Jays were on there, but, I wanted to revisit Jose Brios with you. I thought our conversation and your article about how poor his fastball has been um, was really helpful a couple weeks back. In his most recent start, by far a career low with only two called or swinging strikes with the fastball and sinker combined. Um, it was like four point something percent of his pitches, uh, of his sinkers and fastballs were called or swinging strikes. And his lowest before that was like 12%. By the end of that game, he was just going away from it entirely. Like, I don't know that he threw a fastball in the last two innings he worked. Um, have you have you tracked Barrios since you wrote that article? And what are you seeing in uh, what he's done here over a couple okay but unspectacular starts? Yeah, um, he hasn't really changed that much to be honest he's, he's still throwing his four seamer about as much as his sinker there one start on looks like august 29th that was like right before uh right before my article and was, this is the one where i was like wow that was pretty lucky uh he didn't throw a ton of four seamers then he just came back last start threw a bunch again um it's i 
I understand that it's very hard to change the way that you pitch like midstream. It's just not easy. And I know that guys struggle with that a lot. I thought that the Jays had kind of started to get him to de-emphasize the four-seamer. And it looks like that. If you look at the numbers that in August, he was using it a little bit less. It doesn't look like it's uh, it's fully taken yet. <laughs> One thing that I think is encouraging, and this is probably what you're saying, is that he threw more change-ups than any other pitch type uh, in his last start. And good. Like, I want him to throw fewer fastballs because they're just not great. And change-up versus slider kind of comes down to uh, comes down to handedness issues. Like, you don't really want to throw a ton of change-ups if you're facing all righties. And I'm assuming, but I didn't look through the lineup, that he faced a bunch of lefties in his last uh his last start, but he's the kind of guy who, if his command can hold up, and that's a big issue, right? Like, that's what we were talking about last time, that the biggest problem with the fastball is that he's not commanding it well. If his command for the secondary pitches is holding up, I'd love to see him throw more, and so that's encouraging, but it's just, I wish it was more encouraging. I wish that he was changing more things because the current plan has not been working. It sure hasn't, and it's been a a little bit frustrating to um, watch him chase it and chase it ourselves from an analysis perspective. In terms of throwing the secondary stuff more often, um, I want to pivot to Ross Stripling because Ross Stripling's changeup is one of the best pitches in baseball this year. Um, By Eno Saris' stuff plus metric, it's right up there. Um, If you just look at chase rate by each pitcher and pitch type, it's a top five pitch among starters in terms of chase rate. He throws it a little under 27% of the time, throws it mostly to lefties, but it is still his number three pitch against righties. When you look at Stripling's profile and see a fastball that is nothing special, and then even a couple of breaking balls that don't have great contact against them, but also don't miss a lot of bats. Could you see him pushing the changeup usage even further or is like 25 to 27 and a half percent kind of like the upper tier of, of how much you could get away with using a changeup? I think it depends how many times you want him to go through the order. And you could see in a playoff situation where the Jays say, Ross, here's the deal. You're facing 18 batters and that's it. So, you know, pull out all the stops for not taking you past this. This is a plan that the Braves used last year to good effect, that the Red Sox have used in the playoffs to good effect. I think it would make a lot of sense. And if that's the case, he should throw more change-ups. One of the, one of the really tough things about being a starter is, you know, these guys see your pitches a bunch, and you look at it, and guys can't really get away with being two-pitch pitchers. And that's why you kind of have to mix in all the worst pitches and game theory this and game theory that. But... Yeah, for shorter bursts, I think he can definitely add to it. I'm I'm not convinced that he can get it up to like half the pitches he uses, but he can it can certainly be a lot higher than a quarter of the pitches he uses. It's like you said, it's one of the best pitches in baseball. Certainly one of the best changeups in baseball. And like I mean, Stripling's having a great season, so maybe he just shouldn't mess with what works. But I I would love to see him try to throw it more. One of the big one of the big things that you can do to make yourself better is just throw your best pitch more. <laughs> it's easy. You know, you already throw it. You're good at it. So, yeah, why, why not try it? Yeah, and Pablo Lopez throws his 35% of the time. Jeffrey Springs around 33. Those are the only guys who, at pretty high volume and, and like a starter's workload, throw it significantly more 
than, you know, high 20s percentage. But and I'm you certainly can't suggest, hey, everyone just do what what makes Pablo Lopez so good, because um, then the, the the yeah, throw Pablo Lopez's change up, throw Kevin Gosman's splitter while you're at it, throw uh, Jacob deGrom's sinker while you're at it. Um, OK, so that's those things. Um, I want to ask you about another piece you wrote before we let you go here. Aaron Judge's historic home run is coming. You broke down what dates we might see certain milestone home runs. A 19.3% chance that we're going to see something special September 26th to 28th with Aaron Judge. My question for you, I guess, is I know you looked at a couple different milestones he could hit. Do we get the American League record-setting home run in Toronto that second to last week of the season? So... Luckily for you, I'm updating this thing all the time because it's pretty easy to do once, once you have it built once. And the Toronto series is still the most likely series to see his 60-second home run, which is kind of – it's the most likely series still to see any of his 60th, 61st, or 62nd. I think we're just going to start updating this once a week or so just to say, <laughs> hey, like here's how the probabilities move based on his recent home runs or lack thereof. But he's hit one in the last three games, which is – essentially right on pace with what he's going to need to do to get there. Uh, you'd like to see, you'd like to see a few more if you wanted this, uh, if you wanted to have at least one record breaking home run in Toronto, because the, the big worry to see none of them is just that he falls behind the pace basically. But Which nobody he, wants to see. Just, right. Like I, I'd really like to see it. it it's cool. I, whenever someone's going for a record, I really want them to get it. And <laughs> this one, especially, but yeah, I mean, I think that the odds are still highest for the Toronto series. I, not I think, I know, based on my methodology. And if I were you know, a betting man, I'd say that, yeah, I think it's going to happen. And I think by far the most likely is if he does it in Toronto. So, Get your tickets. Like it, Exactly. It's, I think Mike Petriello actually did an article about where you should get tickets, like where you should ah. sit based on judges' uh, home run spray patterns. So... You can even figure out which tickets to get, but it should be pretty cool to see. Yeah, I'll tell you one giant dork I'll have an eye out for, and I'll leave my media seats to stiff arm him out of the 60-second ball if he's here. Um, <laughs> we won't name names, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Um, all right, Ben Clements, thanks so much for that, man. Uh, hope you're right. Hope the probabilities break our way for a, a fun weekend there in late September. Um, you know, Hopefully it's also part of a, a even less probable story of – the Yankees blowing the division lead uh, down the stretch here, but we'll, we'll see. We can only, we won't ask for too much at once. Uh, ben Clemens of fan graphs. Thanks so much for taking the time out, buddy. Blake. Ben Clemens of fan graphs. Uh, go check out all his great work there. He also had a piece the other week um, about why the Baltimore Orioles playoff odds were so low relative to where they were in the standings. They remain pretty darn low. Uh, the Orioles are, Four and a half games back of the Jays. They'd be five games back and six games back, respectively, of Seattle and Tampa Bay. Fangraphs has Baltimore down to just a 2.8% chance of making the playoffs. It's probably when I know they factor this stuff in. It feels like it should be higher than that since they still have a lot of games left against lesser opponents and against Toronto to to kind of chip away at that. Um, But that gives you an indication of how 
good a position the Jays are in heading into the stretch run here to just make the playoffs. The three AL Central teams, by the way, only have a combined chance of getting a wild card spot by like one of 1.4%. So that is almost like statistically now that's almost down to a race just for the division title. And that's it. Cause you'd need multiple teams in that division to get hot for one of them to get the wild card spot. The Jays, Sitting at 97.7 to make the playoffs based on the fan graphs odds. And of course, these aren't gospel. You can look at a baseball perspective or a baseball reference or a 538. And the odds will be a little different depending on where you look. And they're just probabilities. 97.7% isn't 100%. You still got to play the games. You still got to win the games. Let's take a break. Let's tee up the next game the Toronto Blue Jays can win. And that's tonight's game at the Texas Rangers at 8.05. I will set that up next. Ross Stripling against Dane Dunning as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590 of the Fan. More Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Alish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Your Toronto Blue Jays back in action tonight. Here's how good a Friday we're having. Right as I introduce us being back from the break, the tweet comes down with the Toronto Blue Jays lineup. Kismet. Didn't know if we'd get it in time with the 805 start tonight. So we got all the time in the world to go through the Jays lineup. Go through the Rangers lineup. Go through the pitching matchup. Here is how the Toronto Blue Jays will line up tonight. One tiny little disappointment. We'll get to that at the end. George Springer leads off and plays center field. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at first base. Bo Bichette, Alejandro Kirk at DH. Matt Chapman, Rymel Tapia. A reminder that Teoscar Hernandez remains on the paternity list, which is the explanation for the extra outfielders. Uh, that you're going to hear. Rymel Tapia hits six, plays left. Santiago Espinal second. Danny Jansen catches Jackie Bradley Jr. in right field. So your bench then is Whit Merrifield, Kevin Biggio, Bradley Zimmer, Gabriel Moreno, and a name I'm forgetting. But Gabriel Moreno is the headline item there. Oh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Yeah, that's the other one. Um, but Gabriel Moreno not playing, um, not entirely a surprise. He's likely headed back to Buffalo tomorrow. Um, the Jays are expecting Teoscar Hernandez back off the paternity list by tomorrow. That can always change, of course, but doesn't look like he'll get a start before he's sent back down, unless something different's going to happen, unless they no longer want to carry infinite light-hitting left-handed defensive replacements for the outfield. We'll see how that goes when Teoscar Hernandez is back. Uh, for now, no start for Gabriel Moreno, though. That Jays lineup lines up behind Ross Stripling. Stripling comes in with a 3.03 ERA, a 3.04 fielding independent pitching, a 3.42 expected ERA based on Statcast metrics. So, no way to slice it other than Ross Stripling's been very good. And if you were to take out his numbers from early in the season as a reliever, all those numbers get even better. 
He's in the 95th percentile in baseball in limiting walks. 90th percentile at getting you to swing at pitches outside of the zone. He's pretty average everywhere else. The hardness of contact, uh, a little below average in terms of swing and miss stuff. But you can get by pretty well if you are not walking anyone. And you're tricky enough to get guys to swing outside the zone all the time. The key to that, an elite changeup. One of the best pitches in baseball this year um, by Eno Saris's stuff plus metric at the athletic. It's the best changeup in baseball. You can look at something like chase percentage, which again is how often you get an opposing hitter to swing at a pitch outside of the zone. Here are the leaders. Jacob DeGrom's slider. So that's the best pitch in baseball, getting you to swing at something outside of strike zone. Jacob DeGrom's slider. Zach Wheeler's sinker. Kevin Gosman's splitter. Ross Stripling's changeup, fourth. 48% chase rate. 48% of the time when Ross Stripling throws a changeup outside of the zone, someone will swing at it. Combine that with the fact that on a little bit more than a third of swings, the batter swings and misses, you're cooking. 194 batting average against that changeup. We talked with Ben Clevens of Fangraphs about whether Stripling could throw that even more. Throws it a little under 27% of the time. The high watermark for starters in terms of throwing that changeup is Pablo Lopez, who throws about 35% of the time. There aren't a lot of guys who get it up over 30%, at least as starters. Devin Williams throws that throws his bizarro changeup where it looks like his wrist is spinning around um, a lot, a lot, a lot, but that's not realistic for uh, someone who's starting games. He definitely throws it 57% of the time. Uh, I don't know that uh, you could do that as a starter, but you look at the leaderboard and Pablo Lopez at 35%. You could certainly try to nudge Ross Stripling closer to that. I think Ian Anderson and Jeffrey Springs throw theirs about 33% of the time. Uh, Marco Gonzalez at 31%. So you could probably coax Stripling into throwing it a little bit more. It is his best pitch. But part of the draw with Stripling is also that he throws five pitches, and for the most part, he throws those pitches to multiple areas. So if you're trying to guess what's coming and where, things get really complicated really fast. 92-mile-an-hour fastball, he throws about 35% of the time. Opponents are hitting 230 against it, and actually swinging missing on it 22.6% of the time. It's pretty good for a fastball that's only 92 miles an hour. Um, that's because it's pretty deceptive, paired with that changeup. It's not an elite pitch, but it does do a decent enough job limiting high damage as far as 92-mile-an-hour fastballs go. Then he'll throw an 87-mile-an-hour slider about 22% of the time. Primarily works that one to right-handed hitters. Uh, They've hit 239 off of it with next to no power. Uh, It is a weird slider in that it gets very little swing and miss compared to other sliders around the league, Um, but it's a good ground ball weapon, and it's very difficult to hit for power against it. So that's primarily against righties. He'll throw the curveball about 10% of the time. It's a pitch that has been hit the hardest by far. I don't know that it's like, I think if you were to ever tell Ross Stripling, Hey, ditch a fifth diff, ditch a pitch so that you could throw the change up even more. The curveball is the one I'd be looking at it has the worst results. It doesn't miss a ton of bats. 
yes, it's helpful for sequencing and pairing it with different pitches, change the eye level, um, change what kind of spin you're looking for. It has a purpose in that regard. But the results haven't been great when he does throw it. Uh, and then he also mix in a sinker, a sinker that he's used a little bit more in order to help set up the changeup against righties. He throws his changeup against righties a, a pretty good amount as far as a right-handed pitcher is concerned. Um, and that, we know, will come off a little bit more deceptive, uh, paired off a, a sinker than a straight four-seamer. The sinkers also had pretty good results. Uh, opponents only hitting 206 against it. And again, not something you can hit for a ton of power. So... That's a lot of ways of looking at Ross Stripling's five pitches to say, yeah, he's got an elite changeup, some good secondary stuff, and he's been really, really good. He has not been good against this Texas Rangers team, but that's not really a fair snapshot. He faced them twice the time earlier in the year that the Jays met them, both out of the bullpen, two earned runs over two innings. Ross Stripling was a different guy earlier in the year and out of the bullpen. As a whole, the Rangers have 30 plate appearances against him. Uh, a lot of that is Cole Calhoun. It's a large sample that's pretty okay. It's nothing special. Um, nobody else on the Rangers has more than three plate appearances against him, and nothing's really outlier there. Uh, Leody Tavares has homered off of him. That's the only uh, thing of note in those matchups. Um, Ross Stripling also has slightly reverse platoon splits this year, so he's uh, he's been hit better by righties than lefties in part because that changeup's so elite and he'll throw it more to lefties. It's an interesting one to watch because the Rangers are pretty left-handed heavy. They have five left-handed hitters, including two of their biggest weapons. Despite that, as a team, they hit left-handed pitching significantly better than right-handed pitching. Against left-handed pitching, they're the Blue Jays. Against right-handed pitching, they're bad. I should have thought of a comparison for them. It's not quite like Detroit Tigers bad, but we're talking when we talk about WRC plus, which takes a bunch of things into account and puts everyone on the same scale where a hundred is league average. The Rangers are 17% above league average against lefties and 7% below league average against righties. That's one of the biggest swings in all of baseball. And there's not really a great explanation for it other than some righties are having a tough time against righties this year, even though they haven't been necessarily reverse splits guys in the past. And some lefties are having good seasons against lefties again, despite not being reverse platoon guys. So something to watch there just because Stripling has reverse splits and, and the Rangers are a little bit of a weird team in that regard. Let's see how the Rangers line up. They're going to go with old friend Marcus Semyon. At the top of the order. He'll be followed by Corey Seager, Nate Lowe, Jonah Heim, Cole Calhoun, Leody Tavares, the debuting Josh Young, the number two prospect in that Rangers system, a top 100 prospect around baseball, uh, someone who is probably going to be an everyday third baseman from here if they don't juggle around their, their defensive alignment uh, in future years. This is a guy with some power. He's 24. He wasn't having the best of seasons at AAA, but he missed a good chunk of the year early on uh, with an injury. And if you go back and look at last year's numbers when he jumped from AA to AAA, uh, he was a monster. So don't, don't sleep on that. It'd be fun to see him. Uh, he's followed by Josh Smith. Didn't realize the former Atlanta Hawks forward was now a baseball player. And Bubba Thompson, 
rounds it out in right field. So the Rangers going with, uh, as they do, a pretty top-heavy group there. Um, This is where, you know, if you're looking ahead to Sunday and you're doing a bullpen day or an opener day, it could make some sense to do an opener through that top five or six in the order hand it off to someone else and then go back to, you know, let's say you do Richards for the first six, you give Kikuchi one time through and then let him do the bottom of the order a second time. And then when you get back to the top of the order, you know, you hope it's the fifth inning and and it's a Jimmy Garcia time, something like that. As it stands today though, um, they're betting on platoon splits. They got six lefties in the lineup against Russ Stripling. We'll see. We'll see how that works out. You're going to see a lot of that change up, which is uh, for my purposes. Great. I love talking about that change up. I want to see what it looks like. If he throws it even more, the Jays are going to be hitting off of Dane Dunning. Dane Dunning is a, certainly a lesser version of, of Ross Tripling, not anywhere near as good, but similar approach in that he throws a lot of different stuff. None of it is, elite for velocity or anything like that, but he's a keep you guessing guy. He's a kitchen sink guy as fan graphs has called him. And that type of pitcher has given the blue Jays trouble is a four thirty seven ERA. The underlying metrics are almost exactly that. Like nobody has been more luck neutral than Dane Dunning this year, striking out about 20% of the batters he faces walking about 9% um, does give up a pretty big home run per fly ball rate when the ball gets hit in the air, but he also has a high ground ball rate. So he he protects himself from that a little bit. He is just a little bit below average in just about every stack cast metric. So you wonder what does a fourth starter look like? What does someone that all the metrics agree is a 440 ERA guy look like? Well, it's being just a little below average at everything. And that's what he happens to be. The one outlier skill he has is that um, he does get you to swing at stuff outside the zone uh, at an above average rate, not nearly a raw stripling rate, but 67th percentile. So roughly top third of the league. You're going to see a sinker as his primary pitch, only about 90 miles an hour. He'll throw it about 40% of the time. Um, It is a ground ball machine, but it's very hittable. Not a lot of swing and miss with it. Opponents are hitting 302 against it. Off of that sinker, He'll throw a slider that comes in about 10 or 11 miles an hour slower and is by far his best pitch. Opponents are hitting 193 against it, not a lot of power, almost a 40% whiff rate. And he'll throw it confidently to either side. Against righties, he's going to have that um, breaking away from you low. Uh, Against lefties, he'll jam it in at you a little bit. But that's his best pitch by far. We'll see how much he uses it tonight. Against righties, he basically goes sinker slider. He'll show you the changeup in the cutter, but against righties, it's a pretty heavy sinker slider diet. Against lefties, it's more sinker changeup, and then the slider and cutter are complements off of that. The changeup's not a bad pitch. Um, decent contact numbers against it, but it gets a good ground ball rate. It misses enough bats. It's fine. The Jays have seen Dunning before. They saw him in April. He gave up three earned over five innings. They have 53 plate appearances against him overall. Um, Bo Bichette and George Springer, very good numbers against Dane Dunning in a small sample. Uh, on the other end, Alejandro Kirk, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Rymel Tapia, Jackie Bradley Jr., Kevin Biggio, all big zeros against him. 
you will not see Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Kevin Biggio in today's lineup. Not because of that, I don't think. I don't think you worry too much about a guy having gone 0 for 2 against a pitcher when he faced him before. Also of note, Dane Dunning does have moderate platoon splits. Um, again, because the slider is his primary weapon and, and you can't throw that quite as much and quite as confidently to lefties. Um, the Jay is going with two lefties in the lineup in Rymel Tapia and Jackie Bradley Jr. Matt Chapman and Marcus Simeon having a nice moment on the field uh, before the game as Hazel May tweeted out. That one's an 805 start. Let's take a few texts before we hand it over to fan drive time here. Peter in Toronto wants to know why the Jays don't hit well in the first inning. Wish I had an answer for you on that one. That's a, that's a tough one. It's uh they do not put up a ton of runs right out of the gate. I don't know. I don't really have a good explanation for that. The, the hitters at the top of their lineup are good. Uh, that might just be a, a little bit of a randomness thing or a little bit of uh your approach is different the second time you see a guy and it gets your approach gets a little better as you go. Um, Jonathan and Barry says he's tired of hearing baseball games are too long. They're a break from life. I love the pauses and the slowdowns. Um, Jonathan, I, I agree with you in general, but I do think that if you're baseball, you do have to focus on growing the game and tightening some of those things up is a good way to do that. And I don't think you don't need to play rapid fire, but I've watched some minor league games this year and it's not something that you like notice every single pitch, but the game feels just a little brisker. And I don't think anyone's advocating for like cut 45 minutes off the game. It's just like, if you could get it down like 10, 12 minutes, um, that might be a good thing for pace of play and how enjoyable it is moment to moment. Um, someone asks what the penalty is for going over the pitch clock time. Uh, it's a ball. Or if you're a batter and you delay it, it's a strike. Does the pitch clock reset or pause if the pitcher requests for a new ball? Uh, I would imagine it resets because you have to do that right at the start. Um, and then probably the umpire would just tell you no if you wait for a couple seconds into the clock. Um, I actually thought one of the interesting options with pickoff throws was instead of saying you can only throw over X number of times would have been you can throw over, but the pitch clock doesn't reset it only pauses. So if you're a pitcher, you eat up your pitch clock time, um, but maybe that would have a negative effect on the hitters as well. Uh, Cortland and Keswick wants Ricky Tiedemann called up. Ricky Tiedemann is shut down for the season now. Uh, he's reached his inning limit, so that's not going to happen. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is headed to the injured list. That's why he's not in the lineup today. Otto Lopez will be activated. That comes from Shai Davidi. That's a little disappointing. There'll be another transaction tomorrow. Assuming Teoscar Hernandez is back as anticipated. The question that becomes, does Gabriel Moreno stay up as the extra guy or does Otto Lopez stay up? That's a question of just how much do you value Gabriel Moreno playing every day down in Buffalo versus um, helping your team marginally as a, as a bench piece up at the majors. You could go either way. You could convince me either side. So um, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. placed on the 10-day IL with a left hamstring strain and Otto Lopez recalled. So tiny bit of news there. Someone, uh, Kyle in Woodstock is asking about uh, a stripling contract. 
I think we got to save that for the off season. I think if it was going to get done at this point, it would have gotten done. Um, it's hard to imagine not paying him after the season he's had. And I don't think he's going to command ace money by any means, um, but he's on the older end and he's going to want to cash in for the first time. <laughs> Someone says, solve the foul ball problem. Like the Savannah bananas. And if a fan catches the foul ball, you're out. Uh, yeah, that'd be a fun one. Um, I think you'd start seeing though. I don't know. You could do a lot of things. You could have pitchers just pitching. Like if you're the home team, you have pitchers that prioritize foul balls and you just like make sure you have a lot of former baseball players or like junior baseball players in the stands. You give out gloves. Um, you could, you could, uh, you could manage around that. Um, someone asked how often Frank Viola threw his changeup. Uh, I don't think we have those numbers going back far enough to answer that one. So I apologize for that. Um, but probably a lot. Um, Rick Ian and Markham says, why would you ask if Aaron judge is going to hit his record setting home run in Toronto? Why would Toronto pitch to him? The answer is that teams keep pitching to him. I don't know how to explain it. There's no one else in that lineup who can hit a lick right now. And he's still getting pitched to all the time. If Alec Manoa is in that game, uh, watch out for him pitching aggressively inside. We saw what happened last time. That's, uh, you know, as good as a walk, I guess. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Um, Brendan from Guelph asks if Nate Pearson could be coming soon. Potentially. He threw a rehab outing at AAA yesterday. So he had one last weekend in Dunedin. Only needed 10 pitches to get through it. Apparently looked very good. He threw nine pitches to get through an inning with a strikeout yesterday. Um, again, apparently looked very good. The velo readings were good. They don't have an immediate need in the bullpen, but I do think that over the course of these 10 days where they have 11 games and they're going to have at least one bullpen day, you're probably going to see some up and down. And that's unfortunate for some guys who are going to step in and give you a good performance or give you some innings and head back down. If you're the Zach pops of the world, that's the spot you're in. I don't know specifically if Nate Pearson is next man up or if they would go to, um, you know, Thomas Hatch just got moved to the bullpen in Buffalo. The results aren't very good, but you never know. Um, you also have Foster Griffin down there and Matt Gage, Trent Thornton for length. You've got some options down there. Um, Nate Pearson is the most interesting of them for sure. But the biggest question with Nate Pearson is going to be how long he stays healthy and can he stay healthy? The velo the velocity readings are really nice though. Um, so again, before we hand it off to fan drive time here, a reminder that uh, Julia Kreutz has you for pregame and postgame. This is an 805 start because it's in Texas. Um, so Julia will tag in at seven, give you a seven to eight, and then Jay's talk postgame. Jay's talk plus is back on Monday in the three to five slot. We'll bounce around a lot next week because the Jays schedule is all over the place. They got a night game on Monday and then they play a doubleheader on Tuesday, night game, Wednesday, day game, Thursday. So we'll be all over the, the time slot around the Blue Jays, as you might expect. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. to the IL. Otto Lopez recalled. Ross Stripling on the bump tonight opposite Dane Dunning. The Jays look to stay hot. They look to keep the Orioles at arm's length, four and a half game cushion right now. And hey, look to maybe catch up a little ground on Seattle and Tampa Bay in that three-team 
wildcard shuffle. I've been Blake Murphy for JSTOG Plus. Thanks to JR and Derek behind the glass and all our guests today, Ben, Levi, Keegan. Fan drive time's next, and then Julia Kreutz at 7 for Jay's pregame on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.